0: Hello and welcome to Careers Talk. I'm Kerry Eustace. Now, what's the weirdest interview question you've ever been asked?
1: The the strangest one was just before I went into an interview. uh, They asked me if they could put it on national television.
0: Following this week's news that panels of students have been asking teachers to sing, discuss their fancy dress of choice and nominate a party piece for TV show Britain's Got Talent, We took to the streets to find out if wacky interviews were confined to the teaching profession. This week's guest is Seth Godin, the renowned blogger, author and speaker, who according to Forbes.com is one of the top five web celebs in the entire business world. He'll be telling us how to be indispensable at work. Julian's words of wisdom this week are to take control. And of course we'll have dream jobs aplenty in this week's jobs chart, including a post leading the Edinburgh International Film Festival and the Edinburgh Film Guild. Now I'm joined in the studio, as usual, by my colleague Ali White, and you've been rather busy this week, haven't you? What careers missions have you been out on with your microphone?
2: Well, as you mentioned, I've been out to um, speak to the people of Britain about their job interview experiences. How are they getting on? Are they loving it? Good interviews? Good techniques? Um, Well, very interesting, actually. I think uh, not many people seem to have complete nightmare experiences, but um, everyone's got a story to tell, really, about an awkward interview
0: or a strange experience. (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll hear more about that later. Tell me about um, what Q&A
2: you've picked out this week. Which one caught your eye? Uh, this week it was teaching English for, as a foreign language but uh, instead of getting started we were looking at progressing in that career so it was quite an interesting discussion. Yeah it was professional development and sort of climbing the ladder
0: and stuff wasn't it?
2: Yeah. Good panel? Yeah really interesting panel. Uh, Joe Hallwood, who you probably know as our resident careers expert. Yeah I love Be- Joe. He's the founder of TEFL England and TEFL Scotland as well. Also, we had Dr. Nicholas Groom, a lecturer in Applied Linguistics from the Centre for English Language Studies at the University of Birmingham, and a few authors as well, including Colm Downs, the author of the Cambridge English for Job Hunting, who also delivers pre-sessional English for academic purposes at UCL, University College London.
0: Okay, really good panel. Um, talk to me, there was loads of questions already posted like, well mm. in advance, so it's a really popular topic. What were the main sort of threads? What were people most sort of wanting to get advice about?
2: Well, it's very interesting because everyone's at different stages with their TEFL career. Um, but yeah, in general, we had a lot of people wondering about what qualifications they need. Like Even if they're getting started, they're wondering, shall I do a weekend course or shall I you know, bite the bullet and do a big qualification? So they were very keen to quiz the experts on what they should do because I guess it is a long-term commitment to sign yourself up for an MA or all those various different qualifications you can get. The other thing people were wondering about, um, how much money you can make, because. Sort of general theme that emerged that people know it's not the big bucks, perhaps unless you're lucky or very progressed. So they're saying, once I get started out, am I going to make cash, or if I move on, can I get myself to the next level? Well, that was quite a keen question. We heard that a lot. Okay. What um, What is the career progression path like in TEFL What sort of options have you got apart from you know just sort of starting out teaching in a in a school? Yeah. Well, there's lots of different things you can do. Uh, you know, a lot of people can take the academic work route and. Um, that publishing is a is an um, interesting way of doing it but um a lot of people say well can I work my way into a position of actually writing exams or examining um students or get myself into um better teaching positions really. There's a
0: director of studies role is quite a common position people try to work up to. Isn't yes. It?
2: That one was mentioned a couple of times, but yes, yeah, so uh, there are, it does seem to be a progressional path, but again it comes back to qualifications. Uh, there's entry level qualifications then you work yourself up to the next level. But you've got to be careful. A lot of our experts were pointing out to make sure you get the right one because say um, some countries prefer degrees especially in japan and sometimes it's a visa requirement so say you haven't got a degree and you want to do a tefl qualification perhaps that you'd have to try and get onto that sort of course and as someone did point out you don't have to have a degree to go and do these higher qualifications you can just sort of talk about your experience you may have taught for a few years anyway so you shouldn't be put off if you haven't got a degree but definitely refer people back to the q a because there was some really good specific advice for people in different positions
0: Next this week, I'm delighted to announce a brand new feature. We all know that the working world can really get up your nose from time to time. So we've launched a new dedicated space in the Careers Forum for you to come and let off steam when you need to. The idea is that venting your fury should relieve your stress a bit. And you never know, reading about your horror stories might make someone else feel a bit better. So vent away. And as long as you're not libelous or give us an evil boss's name and address, we'll put any particularly pleasing examples into the podcast. Of course, nice things also happen at work, so there's a space to share happy stories too. Anyway, for now, here's one rant that caught my eye this week.
3: I just got an entry-level job as a technical projects analyst. The issues are... A. I have no clear, defined job description.
0: B. I report to two bosses. c) one of my bosses is a workaholic, giving me only the most mundane tasks. As a result, I am tired, frustrated and basically underutilised. To top it all, this is not my desired career path. I am honestly looking for new opportunities. Please advise. Is there a remedy for this situation? Well thanks to this week's ranter who also mentioned that they were looking for an increased salary. So Harry Friedman, our changing career expert, has pointed out that the best salaries tend to be paid in the financial sector. Have you thought about using your knowledge of the oil industry to move into an oil analysis role in a bank or venture capital company? Next up we have our resident careers guru Julian who says don't be a victim at work and take control.
4: I've been thinking a lot this week about the election and how uh, so many people, so many people just complain and bitch and moan and whine about the way life is and difficulties with life and yet come the election they won't turn up at the polls, you won't see them voting. It really drives me crazy when people won't see the opportunity to take control of their lives and make a change and they don't seize it and you see this in the workplace all the time. So, when uh, any office has a culture, and usually that culture involves a certain amount of leaders and a certain amount of followers, and I obviously completely advocate becoming a leader because it's so fulfilling and rewarding when you sort of you think ambitiously and you uh, gain confidence from learning how to develop your career however, along the way you're going to encounter groups of people who are less motivated than you and actually will probably more likely to sit around in the corner and complain about the culture of the office, complain about how things are done at work. And it, I find this kind of attitude incredibly corrosive and it and really sort of anti-progress and yeah of course you know you have to have a bit of a complain occasionally about things but really it's so much better to think of yourself as an individual in the workplace rather than part of a pack and to think about the positive ways that you can change situations rather than just sit around and complain about them so much like the election rather than treat yourself as a victim of life I suppose think of yourself as being the victor the person that is going to be the hero that's going to change the way things are done There will always be groups of people in every office that will try and do as little as they can. They won't move anywhere. They'll always stay in those positions. Be the person that achieves, that gets on, takes control of their career and has a more fulfilling uh, career and life as a result. So to sum up, my tip for this week is take control.
0: That was creative director at Bower, Julian Lindley, on taking control. Julian's advice about making a good impression when you're in a job is all very well, But you've got to get the job first. How do you go about dazzling them during the application process? Well, if you're trying to get a teaching job, make sure you don't look like Humpty Dumpty for starters. This week, the Teachers Union, NASUWT, claimed that attempts to involve students in the process of selecting teachers has gone too far. With prospective candidates being asked irrelevant and frivolous questions by pupils... General Secretary of the NASUWT Chris Keats explained the union's concerns on BBC Radio 4's Today programme.
2: First of all I do want to say that we are not against student voice, what we're against is the abuse of student voice and we have a dossier now of nearly 300 complaints from teachers where we think there has been abuse, Um, teachers who've been subject to interview panels of pupils where they come up with the questions, they've been asked to sing when they're not been uh, applying for a music post, they declined to do that, they didn't get the job. Uh, We've had others who've been asked uh, if they were on Britain Got Talent, what would your talent be? And it's absolutely unacceptable for a teacher who's been trained, gone through extensive training, to find themselves being turned down at interview because pupils think they look like Humpty Dumpty or don't pick the right hobby to tell
0: them that the pupils approve of. Chris Keats of the NASUWT there. We sent Ali White out with a mic to hear about your interview success and horror stories.
5: Paul Billich um, and I am uh, I teach in a sixth form college in London. I do Easter revision courses for different schools. People come for you know for their A levels and things like that, and their children are asked to children, young people are asked to um, you know doing a teacher assessment then, and um, you know I've had nothing very negative. But I always feel a little bit it, it could be quite personal for no particular reason really.
3: Maria Fletcher, and I'm an art teacher. So in your
2: experience in your current role, you say you have children which sit in on teaching Mm. interviews. How has that gone in your experience?
3: It's gone really well, actually, because I think um, the the kids are very perceptive nowadays, and they know what they need. And I also think that when somebody's interviewed by children, Mm -hmm. they tend to drop their guard a little bit, and I think you probably get more of the truth.
5: I I, I don't think it's fair, really, because there's too much too much going on in, in, in their minds about reasons why they would give good or bad marks for, for teachers or other staff in the school. Students have got a funny idea about, may have a funny idea about what is valid or not valid in, in someone who's going to work with them.
3: I think they'll probably get a few more interesting responses that you wouldn't have got if you hadn't been interviewed by children. And do the children enjoy it? Yeah, they love it because they feel they've got the power, you know. They, they, they've, they've actually been part of the decision-making process. It makes them feel empowered, and I think that's a good thing.
2: Yes. And how do the um, candidates react when they see the children there? Some of them are scared, <laughs>
3: um, but I think the good ones wouldn't be intimidated because they understand what's happening and they know that the kids are the clients mm-hmm. and uh, they know it's important to impress the kids as, as much as their the senior staff, if you like.
1: Uh, yeah, my name is Chris and I'm a pilot. I guess uh, the, 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 the strangest one was just before I went into an interview uh, they asked me if they could put it on national television and so the whole interview got recorded and, uh, and was broadcast. How did you feel about that? Well, I felt alright at the time. I think the interview went quite well but uh, I've still never watched it myself.
5: <laughs> uh, Tom Barnes. Well, I'm retired and I was a Charter Town Planner, working in, in uh, East Yorkshire. But the one I do remember, always, as a question I was asked, was who have I ever inspired? And again, I thought that was a difficult one to answer. But I was able to say that I had inspired at least one person in my life, which is, is maybe about as many as I have ever inspired, because that person did subsequently come and say they'd gone into a planning career as, as a result of... Um, I think it was a, a talk or something I'd given once at uh, college. Brilliant. So it was nice to have inspired at least one person in your life if nobody else. <laughs> um,
1: I guess the hardest ones are when you get asked about your weaknesses. When they Every interview you'll get asked about uh, do you have any weaknesses and I always find it's good to uh, get those out of the way nice and early and then you can build up to a, a crescendo and, and finish on your strong
4: points. Um, I'm f- Frank Stewart. Sure. Um, I- a customer assistant um, in a bank in Scotland.
2: Okay, is there any particular questions that you come up in interviews you think, oh, that really um, helps me demonstrate my skills to the employer?
4: I think that's probably one of the hardest questions that you ever get asked because you've got to then promote yourself, whereas in a lot of cases, an awful lot of people prefer to kind of downplay their skills. But it is, it's, it's a toughie, but it's one that everybody should actually sit, no matter which interview they're going for, and, and actually work out what the the positives are, and even what the, the negatives are. I mean, that is the question that always gets asked and always gets everyone. It's like, what do you bring to the job? What are your pluses and then what are your minuses?
5: I think as, a, as an interviewer, you're always um, willing to um, have quite a lot of latitude and be, you know, be forgiving. It's, it's a matter of sort of almost how they say it rather than... There's, there's no definitive answer to a question like that anyway, so... It's, You're not necessarily looking for an answer as such.
3: Yeah. It's just
5: how they answer it and general demeanour.
3: I've been asked this, and uh, I ask this when I interview people. Mm -hmm. You say, um, all right, I'm going to give you a £1,000. What are you going to do with it? And it's a really random sort of left-field question. um, And they sort of look at you for a while, and then they either say something really interesting, like I'd go and travel around the world, or they say, oh, I'd invest it in a few ices. And that sort of nails it for me, really, because I think... Mm, do I want to employ somebody who would go and invest £1,000 or do I want to employ someone who would go and buy red shoes? <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> and now
0: I'm very excited to be joined on the line by one of the top five web celebs in the business world, Seth Godin, the best-selling author, marketing and new media commentator and popular blogger. In his most recent book, Lynchpin, Are You Indispensable? Seth explores how by altering your approach to your professional life, you can become a lynchpin in your workplace. He's five hours behind in New York. A time difference I learned the hard way by calling him early this week and waking him up at 6.15 a.m. Oops, hopefully he's forgiven me and can give us some great advice today on the pod. I'll Welcome to bad. the show. Thank you. Now, there's been some research that's been published in the UK in recent weeks by academics at Roehampton University, and it's found that there's rising levels of stress and depression among people who are worried about job security, uh, threat of redundancy and employment. And I wanted to know what you thought about this research and what advice you'd give to people who are worried about their job security.
6: Well, it's no surprise at all that people are stressed about it. And the Mm. reason is because job security is going away. It's going away forever, because the industrial age, the one that started in Manchester and is 150 or 200 years old, uh, is going away. That we all grew up in a world where the deal was you did what you were told, you worked in the factory, you followed instructions, and in return you made a decent wage and had a steady job. And that's what school trained us to do, and it's what our resume says we want to do, and it's what the boss hires us to do. And what has fallen apart in just the last five or ten years is that because the global marketplace is here, because I can find anything I want instantly online, because someone can send any job that can be written down to someone who can do it cheaper, that's all over. And all that's left, the only people who are going to get paid well going forward are people who work without a map, who people people who figure out how to get things done without being told precisely what to do, people who aren't working in the factory but instead are doing the work of human beings, connecting to other human beings and making a difference. And if that's not your job, then I'm not surprised that you're stressed Hmm. because uh, every day people like you are going to find their jobs under threat.
0: Yeah, you talk about that quite a lot in the book, sort of the changing culture of the workplace and, you know, the the job security is evaporating. What sort of steps can people take then to becoming, you know, indispensable and so that they alter their approach and their outlook on their work?
6: Well, your question is stated exactly perfectly because what I am not saying is that you need to do what you've been doing but work harder. What I'm not saying is you need to do what you've been doing but take less money. What I'm saying is you need to make a choice. It's a simple choice, but it's one that's going to be very difficult to make because it goes against everything you've been taught. And the choice is either to race to the bottom, which means uh, work harder, get paid less, follow instructions, become more obedient, or race to the top, which is insist that you do work that's not asked for, become more generous, not less, do art, become uh, less obedient and more focused on making a difference. And when you do those things, when you act uh, more like Richard Branson and less like a flight attendant, what you discover is that people very much need these sort of generous artists, as I call them, and they will actually beat a path to your door. Those people have infinite job security. That if Richard Branson or Rupert Murdoch or, or a middle manager who's indispensable ever chose to, loo- to leave the organization, they wouldn't have to go sending their resume out. People would find them.
0: Yeah, so you're sort of contributing above and beyond your job spec, aren't you? You're sort of going the extra mile.
6: Well, I'm not even. I'm not ready to say it's an extra mile because it's not in the same direction. Okay. I, I'm saying that you're, you're, you're playing a completely different game. That if you have a job where everyone who has the same job as you is rewarded for obedience and punished for innovation, then you need a new job. But if you can find a job, and I believe most white collar jobs are like this, a job where the organization needs people who are going to solve interesting problems needs people who can look at chaos and bring order to it, needs people who can do their job differently tomorrow than they did it yesterday. Go find one of those jobs and over-deliver on that, and then you're indispensable.
0: Do you think all employers are going to be open to linchpins, the people that you've, you're just describing now? Or And do you think linchpins need to do something to sort of convince employees that that's what they need for their business as well?
6: Well, I think that you know if you want to be... Uh, uh, at working at the cash wrap at Marks and Sparks, following instructions, no. It's unlikely that you're going to find a boss who embraces the fact that you take an extra 10 seconds, make connections with people, etc. But most of the interesting jobs that are out there, most of the jobs that pay a decent wage, the boss, and I talk to more bosses than most people, the boss desperately wants people who are going to act like this. That whether you're in customer service or product design or sales or marketing or um, the person who holds the whole office together, they're not looking for someone who looks up every minute and says, tell me what to do. They are looking for someone who figures out what to do and does it, even though it hasn't been done before.
0: Okay, what steps can people take to be- become more of a linchpin? And how can you tell if you are one or if you aren't one?
6: Well, what the kind of work I'm talking about... Uh, I call art, because art, painting, sculpture, playwright, uh, has extended itself to any human endeavor where you are bringing your personal self to work and changing others in a way they want to be changed. And art can't work without generosity. You know, Vincent van Gogh didn't say, pay me a million dollars or, or I won't paint the sunflowers. What happened was he painted the sunflowers. Anyone who wanted to look at them got to see them for free. Uh, if he gets paid along the way, that's fine, but it's not about the money. It's about the giving. It's about the generous act of doing something that might even be difficult to repay. And that when you see Lynchpins at work, when you encounter people who are on this path, what you discover is their focus is not a day's work for a day's pay. Their focus is how can I find a platform to do my art? How can I find people I can change and influence and help? And if they do that often enough, then one of the nice side effects is they get a great job and they get paid well. But that's not the order it happens in, right? They don't say, first, pay me, tell me what to do, and then I'll be generous. What they say is the act of generosity is why I woke up this morning. The act of doing more than I was told or asked for is what I set out to do. And then along the way, and this is the cool part, because even though you did what you wanted to do, and even though you felt connected and and welcomed where you worked, you also got paid.
0: Okay. There was some, another really interesting sort of uh, characteristic of pin and there was an interesting line in the book that I liked, and you said, great jobs, world-class jobs, jobs people kill for. Those jobs don't get filled by people emailing in resumes. And you also said... Uh, you are not your resume, you are your work. And I find that really interesting because there seems a lot of emphasis on sort of CVs and following the the instructions to create the perfect CV. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea and, and why we should be more about our work and not sort of ticking the boxes when we're applying for something?
6: Well, sure. You know, what a resume is, is a piece of paper filled with brand names that prove that you are good at compliance, that it is a document that proves that you are willing to be a cog in the machine and do what you are told. And if you mail in your resume... To uh, uh, anyone in the US or the UK, they're going to, in a big company, they're going to scan it into a computer, and the computer will look for the keywords that prove that you're compliant and then enter you in a lottery to see if maybe you get an interview for one of those jobs where you have to fit in. Well, the alternative is to have a reputation that precedes you. The alternative is. To have so many people that you've made an impact with, whether it's because they read your blog or because they've answered your questions on Stack Overflow or because in the last three projects you managed, so many things changed for the better that people insisted on giving you uh, uh, help and testimonials, that if you were one of those people then you don't mail in a resume. You mail in a, a, a powerful cover letter with six testimonials attached to it. Or the people who are in your tribe that have been following you online, they find you your next job because you told them that you're looking for one. Right? Th- that this network of people who realize that they can't live without you will go really far out of their way to find you that job where you're going to get to do your art because ar- your art is important to them.
0: Yeah. You also talk about, don't you, um, finding the right sort of culture, organisation, you know, really matching what you want to do, like what you say with your art, with your own career goals. There was, I can't remember the guy, but the example, and he sort of was in contact with the company for a year, you know, uh, developing relationships with the company and its employees and taking a really different approach rather than just emailing in and hoping that they'd pay him attention. Would you say that's a good technique that people could try here in the UK too?
6: Well, yeah, I mean... We, we say that we don't have a lot of choices, but we do. You know, I went to Stanford Business School, um, which was not a cheap place to go to school, and 90% of the people I went to school with went to the placement office to look for a job at an investment bank or consulting firm. Well, once you go looking for a job at an investment bank or a consulting firm, don't be surprised if they treat you like an investment bank or a consultant. Well, I didn't want to do that, so I went and got a job at one-third the salary, working for a company with 30 people in it. And that single choice on my part determined my entire career because I said it's more important where I work than how much I get paid, uh, that if you find a platform to do the art you want to do, the money's going to take care of itself. But if you go someplace just for the money, then what you've signed up for for the rest of your career is to follow instructions.
0: Can we talk a bit more about your background? How did you sort of develop these techniques and this approach to work? where you know How did you get the ideas
6: well mm-hmm. the, the quick answer to where do you get good ideas is you have bad ideas. Uh, I have more bad ideas than anybody I know. Uh, having a lot of bad ideas mm-hmm. is not a gift it 's just something you decide to do. If you are willing to have a lot of bad ideas you 'll come up with some decent ones along the way. The trick is sort of def- Differentiating them uh, in terms of the arc of what I've been doing. I've been studying successful people uh, for 25 years. You know, I met Tom Peters when his first book came out 25 years ago. Um, I've worked with, uh, you know, interviewed Richard Branson and, and worked with Guy Kawasaki and uh, a lot of authors. The point is that if you look around you and keep track of what's working and what's not then over time, you get a sense for not how you'd like the world to be, but how the world is. And what I'm trying to do in this book is report on how the world is, not describe where I want it to go. Mm.
0: I hope this isn't a cheeky question, Seth, but do you consider yourself a linchpin?
6: Well, here's what I've discovered. I've discovered that if people write to me, and I enjoy hearing from them, and they say, will you please come... uh, to wherever and give a speech, which is what I do for a living, and I say, I'm sorry, I can't, it's too far away, they never write back and say, that's okay, we found someone just like you here. Um, And that's a clue to me that I'm onto something, because there isn't someone just like me there. Uh, If they want me, there's only me. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be, I think, the goal of everyone who wants to be not stressed at work is if the work you do is artistic enough and generous enough and unique enough that there isn't another one of you easily replacing you for a little bit less money and a little bit easier to work with, then you've figured out how, at least in the short run, to be indispensable.
0: Brilliant. Um, just before you go, is there any sort of top tips that you want to share with our listeners on being a linchpin, being indispensable?
6: Well, there are two things i say. First of all, this is not easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. And the very fact that people aren't willing to do it is what makes it scarce and valuable. And the second thing, which I write a third of the book about, is that the reason it's not easy is because you're afraid. And you're afraid because there's a little voice in the back of your head that says, but people will laugh at me or make fun of me or I'll lose my job or the economy's not good or I'm not capable of doing this or on and on and on and on and on. You're not the only person who has that voice in the back of your head. Everyone does. And that the act that I am pushing for is to ship it out the door, to do the work, to make it happen, to do it now, not in three weeks or three months. And if you start doing it, small acts of generous art, what you discover is they will be followed by larger acts, and then the voice will quiet down and you will make a difference.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much, Seth.
6: Thanks so much. Cheers. Have a great day. You too.
0: Bye-bye author seth godin there his book lynchpin are you indispensable published by Piacus, is out now now for the moment all the job seekers out there have been waiting for the jobs top 10 this week's chart is brought to you by trina hopcraft from guardian
2: jobs and ali white a major role in shaping the edinburgh film scene kicks off the chart at 10 the center for moving image home of film house The Edinburgh International Film Festival and the Edinburgh Film Guild is in need of a visionary
7: Chief Executive Officer. Number nine is a post for a non-executive board member at the Department for Work and Pensions, Health and Safety Executive Board. Fancy a job
2: in the former capital of culture? We have a Head of Environmental Services post at number eight. Liverpool City Council is offering 62k to someone with a successful track record in environmental performance and financial targets. Still in Liverpool for number seven, UK
7: Children's Cancer charity Click Sergeant needs a qualified part-time social worker
2: for a role at the
7: Royal Liverpool Children's Hospital. A sub-editor
2: role at six, financial news magazine Money Week is looking for someone with a passion for financial writing and editing to work at its South Bank offices. At five, the University of Southampton
7: Winchester School of Art needs a senior lecturer or reader in fashion and textile management, ideally at PhD level to contribute to both teaching and research in fashion management and fashion and textile marketing. A great broadcasting opportunity at four,
2: Nova, a company that develops, designs and organises large scale televised sporting events, needs a production manager for its in house production company Film Nova. Coming in at
7: three, a senior management team role at the University of Cambridge. A secretary of the School of Physical Sciences is needed to lead the administration of the school. At two, human rights charity Amnesty International is looking for a campaigner to cover six months' maternity leave. Top of the jobs this week is a principal post at Kaplan International Colleges, London. You'll be managing the college's English language programmes with vision and drive and the ability to provide clear leadership at the college's Covent Garden and Leicester Square bases.
0: You can find out more about these jobs at guardianjobs.co.uk. Before we go, let's have a look at next week's diary. Alison, what's coming up in the careers forum?
2: Well, we've got the Channel 4 production training scheme, a live Q&A for people wanting to find out more about that. It's on April the 12th between 12 and 3. And on April 15th, our experts are offering advice on changing career into the charity sector.
0: Brilliant, thanks. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks very much to our guests Seth Godin, Julian Linley, Trina Hopcraft from Guardian Jobs, everyone who shared their interview experience with us and Alison White. I'm Kerry Eustace. Careers Talk was produced this week by Kate Taylor. Until next week, goodbye.